Welcome to What Needs to Be Said. I'm your host, Alex Regan. Join me on a transformative journey as we explore the power of speaking our truth, overcoming adversity, and discovering our authentic selves. Through personal stories of origin, struggle, and emergence, we'll uncover the profound truth that connects us all. Just as I wanted readers of my book, What Needs to Be Said, to see themselves within the pages, my hope for this podcast is that you'll recognize yourself in each of our stories. Together, our collective storytelling creates a space for healing and helps us grow closer to who we really are. Oneness. Get ready to embark on this remarkable journey of self-discovery and connection. Welcome to What Needs to Be Said. Welcome back to What Needs to Be Said. I'm your host, Alex Regan. I'm excited for you to be here with me today. So today, I'm going to talk about my own struggles. So if you've been following along on the podcast, I typically follow the pattern of my book, which is also called What Needs to Be Said. And the pattern of that is to talk about it in three parts, which is the origin, struggle, and emergence. So I've been talking with guests about their origin, some struggles that they've gone through, and then how they've emerged out of that. So in the other episodes, when it's just me, I'm talking to you about sort of my own individual pieces of that. So I've had a couple of episodes. If you haven't heard the two origin episodes, you might want to go back and listen to those. But today I'm going to go into the struggle some. So where did the struggle begin for me? I mean, in some ways, I feel like it began as a pretty young kid because I always felt like I was not ever going to be clearly what they, meaning my family, society, church, everyone else, what they needed me to be. And I never knew how to reconcile that. You know, as a young kid, I knew I wanted to dress differently than they wanted me to dress. I knew I behaved differently than they wanted me to behave. You know, years later, I always heard my mom say that phrase, you know, that I marched to the beat of my own drum. And I think that's always been true. But it took a toll on me. Because I never felt like I belonged. I never felt like I had a place. I never felt like, in truth, it was really safe to be, you know, fully who I was and and my full, whole self. And that takes a toll. And I mean, I think it's just now, you know, decades and decades later that I'm realizing how much of a toll that it takes. You know, it really becomes a trauma that you, you know, and I don't want to speak for other people, but that I have stored in my own body physically even. Like this weight that I have carried. And it's weird because, you know, when you grow up in a, like a fundamentalist type thinking Christian church, you know, there really is this idea that there's nothing you can really do to get in good graces with God. Like there's nothing you can do of your own self. It's nothing that you can be that would get God to basically, you know, forgive you, that would get God to love you wholly and accept you. You know, really the only option, the only way to get to God is through accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior and repenting for your sins and and really going down that route. And I struggled with that because it always felt like who I was was so contrary to who they needed me to be that I didn't know how to always be repenting for that in a way. Like that's, I guess, sort of how it felt like that I was going to just always be in this repentance. It never felt like 
I just accepted Jesus and then I was saved and then it was all good. Like so many people I knew, that's really how they were able to act in the world. And maybe it was the subtle and sometimes not so subtle other messages that I began to receive as I began to grow up around how queer people are not saved no matter what they do. And that there are sort of these rules that are contrary to what you've told me the rules are. You know, if you say, oh, all you have to do is accept Jesus into your heart and you're saved. You know, to my brain, that means that means everyone. But so many times I came to find out that they didn't mean everybody. And that really confused me. And it really caused me a lot of just heartache and pain and lost sleep and stress and, you know, probably a lot of times uh, spent fight or flight because I just felt like, damn it, no matter what I do and no matter who I am, I'm not going to be enough. And I think a lot of us, I mean, I've worked with a lot of different people. I've spoken in a lot of different places. I've talked to a lot of people in this world. And I think a lot of people struggle with that feeling of like feeling like they're not good enough. And sometimes it's not on the surface level. It's not like a thing that you consciously believe anymore. If you've done a lot of years of therapy or you've done a lot of other work like that, you know, you probably have uncovered most of the surface level parts of that. And what's left is probably a lot of the like more deeply rooted, sometimes, you know, unconscious uh, and subconscious things around, you know, I'm not good enough. But it's a pretty prevalent problem that we have. I mean, I think that runs through all of society. But what I've found is, is that the people who don't have the additional religious upbringing, especially, again, I know I'm, a, I'm an interfaith minister, but I, my experience and my own growing up is, is focused on Christianity. So I tend to stick around um, those parts because I like to speak from what I know and uh, that's what I know. So my experience is that people who don't have a Christian upbringing, even though I totally, especially in the United States, believe that we're all affected by Christianity and its influences uh, as if you're, you know, currently in 2023 living in this country, you know, and are seeing it daily. And if you're listening down the road, hopefully uh, we're uh, looking back on this history and we're about to make a change. At least I pray we are. Anyways, folks who haven't grown up with that very specific sort of Christian path in their household and in their, you know, upbringing, I've noticed that Yes, they have the I'm not good enough thing, and it's still prevalent in their experience. But the people that I've worked with, the people that I'm friends with, the people that I have talked to preaching and going to churches, the people who have that extra layer of the Christianity built on top of their already like, you know, I'm not good enough. It's like it doubles down. It's like it's a whole second layer then of work to undo. Because for me, you know, I came out of the womb into this family, into this belief system, into this pattern of this is just how it is. There's only Jesus. That is the only way. I mean, it was well into my probably, I would guess, teens before I even realized or knew, except for when I heard my mom or other people talk about how evil things were, like people who were witches or people who 
you know, believed in astrology and all kind. you know, I mean, literally, like, there was that kind of talk and language that anything that wasn't Jesus was basically from the devil. And so I always felt like I had this compounded version of I'm not good enough, because not only did I seem to have the I'm not good enough that everybody just seems to have, but then you have this built-in belief on top of it that's about, like, you're literally not good enough to be saved. And I don't know. I think that caused a lot of just deep, deep scars. Well, now they're scars, but I think a lot of deep, deep wounds inside of me that even now I'm still uncovering the ramifications of. And so I think my struggle, you know, when I came, after I came out, then I was like out in, you know, the world. I had come out to people at work. I was coming out to most of my friends. Even after the sort of backlash of a lot of my community members from church and places like that saying things like, oh, I can't be your friend anymore and, you know, losing a lot of those communities. And granted, there were some folks who were nice and kind to me and attempted to, you know, still welcome me. But it just didn't feel like I could I could belong there anymore. I mean, again, in a lot of ways, it felt like I never belonged. And, you know, I had to choose to leave myself as well. Like I had to choose to say, like, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to renounce Christianity. I'm going to renounce all of my beliefs. And mostly it just felt like, you know, for my own sanity, because I couldn't reconcile any longer those beliefs that they had built into me, which is, you know, you're a sinner. There's nothing you can do to be saved, especially if you're queer. I couldn't reconcile that with being who I was. Like it was literally just felt like it was breaking my brain. It felt like it was breaking my body. It was just, you know, destroying me from the inside out. And so I had to let it all go. And I think that's when the struggle changed in a way because then I felt this huge void. Sometimes when I preach, I'll say that losing my community and losing in some fashion my family and people in my family was difficult, but the even more difficult thing was losing God because that left a void inside of me that I knew nothing could ever fill. In a lot of ways, I've been able to create a, a family of choice, as we say in the queer community, and that has filled a lot of that void and that space around my family and my community pains. But for a long time, I didn't feel like anything could possibly fill the void that it left by leaving God behind. And that was maybe, in some ways, the biggest and most painful thing to come back from. Because for a long time, I decided, like, I don't want anything to do with anything that even says the word God. I don't want anything to do with anything that says the word Jesus. You know, like, I was notoriously pretty angry at anything to do with Christianity to the point where I wanted to, like, flip off a car that had a fish on the back of it, which is typically the symbol. I don't, you don't see them very much anymore, but you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, you used to see them all over as like a little bumper sticker. It was like a little fish, which sort of signified, you know, not sort of, but signified that you were a Christian. And I just like, I wanted to get away from all of that. I wanted to run away from anything that had to do with God. Like I thought somehow if I could escape that, then I could somehow save myself, I guess. And what I came to find is, is that and maybe this is true, is, you know, we think, oh, if we just, out of sight, out of mind, things, if we just get away from something, it'll 
have time to heal and all of that stuff. And, and ironically, I think while in the moment, um, for our sanity in the moment for maybe getting ourselves out of direct, you know, fight or flight, stepping away from something that's causing us trauma is, you know, probably a great idea, but over time it doesn't solve it. And I think that's what I began to find over the years in my, into like my mid and late twenties is it wasn't solving the problem. And I was angry and full of rage and lashing out at people and just, I don't know, I just, in a way I lost myself and maybe in a way that was like a part of finding myself because I didn't know who I was without all of that. I mean, maybe that's the deeper struggle is most of us are trying to figure out who we are, who we are outside of the confines of the social structures that are set up around capitalism and white supremacy and the patriarchy. Like, who are we outside of that? And I didn't know. I didn't even know how to find out. And the ramifications of that are intense because I think I held myself to such a standard that I should have known. I should have been able to figure it out. And the truth is, I think we come into this place having forgotten who we are. And part of the work is to remember who we are, to remember that we come from and are connected to oneness, to love, to belonging. And it's hard because everything about this place is basically the opposite of that. But I guess what I learned is in those young formative years of, hey, there's nothing you can do to earn God's grace, to earn God's love, shy of just, you know, repenting and saying, I accept Jesus. But that's not about you, right? That's not something you're technically doing. That's just like something some dude, Jesus, is technically doing outside of you. Like he's giving you this grace and this forgiveness and this peace and this redemption and this salvation. It's nothing you're doing. And so I think that's what happened for me is that I realized, God, what if there's nothing I can do? What if I can't get it right? And so I think that's been my struggle for all of these years is this, you know, a lot of times I think subconscious, now it's it's coming to the forefront more because I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm becoming aware of it and I'm doing work around it. But I think for so long, for decades, it was just this unconscious fear of I'm going to get into trouble. Like the other shoe is going to drop. Someone's coming for me. They're looking for me and I'm going to be held accountable for how wrong I got it. You know, I heard I was at this workshop uh, earlier in the summer with um, Liz Gilbert and Rob Bell. And it was amazing, life changing, extraordinary. Um, If you don't follow both of them and know who they are, find out because they're both extraordinary. And one of the things that Liz Gilbert said was, you know, something about, you know, that she believes there's a heaven and hell. And there's a thin veil of something that separates us from heaven and that separates from hell. And it's not about another place from here. It's, it's about here in this experience. And she said, the thin membrane, I think it was, that separates us from heaven or hell is mercy. When we give ourselves mercy, we go to heaven. And when we take mercy away or withhold mercy from ourselves, we're in hell. And I wrote that down in my notebook and I must have put like 50 underlines under it because it was like a light bulb went on. I realized that that little kid in me was always looking for mercy. I was looking for a God that was generous and kind and loving and that actually wanted to say to me, there's nothing you have to do to be loved. You are loved. I was looking for that God and I wasn't finding him 
not right in front of me anyways, and not in the experiences that I had for a lot of the first several decades of my life. In fact, it took me into probably the third decade of my life until I began to find that God. And it also never occurred to me that that God could be within me. That God lives and breathes inside of me. It's not separate outside of me. It's not some God that's going to give me mercy. Ironically, the work is, is to give myself the mercy. And that's what I have been absolutely terrible at. I'm not even sure I know what that means in relationship to myself. I know what it means in relationship to other people. If I watch someone make a mistake that even had really harsh consequences in the world, you know, like someone did something and it caused an accident or somebody got hurt, I know I'd be willing to give someone mercy and to say, it's all right. We make mistakes. We're not perfect. But that doesn't mean you are a mistake. It doesn't mean you are unperfect. It's like that difference between guilt and shame that Brene Brown talks about. You know, guilt is that you feel guilty about something that you did. But shame is that you are ashamed of yourself. It's like of who you are. And I think that's a huge distinction. And maybe that ties into this whole thing with mercy. Because I don't think I ever just took on that I was guilty. Like guilty of being a sinner. And then when Jesus says, oh, I died for your sins, you're off the hook. You can just go, oh, great. Like he took my sins. So I'm no longer guilty. So I'm free. I think I saw a lot of people operate like that. And be able to take that on. As almost this miracle healing. But I couldn't ever take that on because mine wasn't just guilt. Mine was shame. I've been ashamed of who I am. Ashamed of my whole self. Ashamed of what I look like. Ashamed of my body. Ashamed of the way my mind works. I've been ashamed of myself for as long as I can remember. Because I haven't been right. It's like the whole Goldilocks and the three bears, you know, she goes around and she's like, oh, this bed is too hard, this bed is too soft, this bed is too medium, you know, the porridge is too hot, the porridge is too cold, the porridge is too runny. Like, I've basically been Goldilocks to myself. Every time I've done something, not needing to give myself some sort of accolade or praise or Way to go, attaboy. But just even a normal level of like, hey, that was pretty great. It never feels really sincere. You know, over 10 years ago, I was in a healing session with an intuitive psychic. And she literally said to me, I see you. I see you on a Hay House stage. And I was just like, what? What the hell? Okay. How's that ever going to happen? And I just tucked that away somewhere in my brain somewhere. And here we are a decade later, and you might not know, but the people who publish my book, What Needs to Be Said, is Hay House. And you'd think that that would give my brain, and maybe not my brain, but my heart, some sort of deeper recognition. An attaboy, right? Like, way to go. Holy cow. That came to fruition. That came true. And yet, it's really hard to take that in. And why? Because I'm really shitty at giving myself mercy. 
I can't let myself off the hook. And I think partly it's because I don't want to. Why? Because who would I be? I want you to sit with that yourself for a moment. Who would you be if you maybe gave yourself mercy? Who would you be if you let yourself off the hook? Now, I see glimpses of it. I've done all the things in my book that I gave everyone else for little practices and things to get to this deeper level. I've done all of those things myself, and they've certainly helped me. I've healed layers of this, but the layers are deep. You know, some days it feels like it's easy to be like, oh my God, am I doing any work? And I think that's just maybe how deep the layers go. It's kind of like an excavation. It's like an archaeologist. You know, you don't just uncover the edge of this. Oh my God, we found this right corner of this building. Let's stop here. And we'll take photos of it and be like, what a beautiful building this must have been. Okay, we did the work. Everybody pack up. Let's go home. No, we don't stop there. We painstakingly brush away and gently chip away at all of the aspects of us and all of the parts of us that are no longer serving us to discover and uncover the whole essence of who we are. You know, using the book, the idea of, of Michelangelo and, and the David, which he said, I guess he was asked about it, and he said something to the effect that the statue was always inside of the marble. He saw that. He just chipped away all of the excess, everything that wasn't the statue. And I like that visualization. But I feel like I've also taken it to a new level for myself personally with this whole idea of like it being this archaeological dig. Because I think it's easy to think, can I stop now? <laughs> Is my work done? I'm tired. I'm tired. But maybe in some ways we haven't gotten to the treasure room, you know? And I think that's what we're all looking for. Is to dig deeply enough to clear up, off enough stuff, enough of our toxic beliefs, our old patterns that we learned from whoever raised us, the stories we've told that used to maybe serve us, that used to protect us, that no longer do, but now keep us held hostage. I think we're all looking for this treasure. And a lot of times we think it's something that if we do this certain thing, you know, if we follow this one religion, we're going to get to the treasure. If we follow these rules, we're going to get to the treasure. And the truth is, it's inside of us. It's not outside of us. It's easy to think about how, oh, I got this thing that I've been wanting to get. Like, I got a book deal. My book is out and published in the world. I'm holding it right now in my hand. It's a real thing. Why doesn't that give me the peace of God? That's what we call it in our house. We think all these things that we're looking for, again, are outside of us, and we think they're going to give us some peace, some semblance of happiness. We'll feel complete. We'll feel just whole and we'll feel great. And we'll never look back. But that's not really how this works. I think I talked about this in another episode that all of life seems to be this rotating cycle pattern of origin, struggle, emergence. We have our origin. We go through a struggle. We emerge out of that. Then we're going along and something happens and it brings up some other aspect of something from our origin. And then we struggle through that 
and then we emerge out of it and we continue that pattern. I think sometimes we get stuck in some of those places. I know I spent probably like a decade stuck in the struggle before I knew how to emerge out of where I was at the time. But it doesn't mean that I emerge out of everything and that it's like, okay, it's all done now. It's complete. And maybe that's what frustrated me about Christianity. If all you have to do is just say, I asked Jesus into my heart and I'm saved. I think that seems like some sort of shortcut. Great, I don't actually have to do any more work then. But I could see that that clearly wasn't how it was. Because I always felt like I had more work to do. More shame to clear out. More discomfort. More anger, frustration, sadness, depression, pain, self-loathing. And what if it's always just that? And what if that's okay? What if part of this journey is just that cycle through? The origin, struggle, emergence. Origin, struggle, emergence. And how quickly we move through those spaces depends on how much mercy we're willing to give ourselves. Because I know in those times, like I said, I joked, I was like 10 years in a struggle. That's because I had completely withheld all of that mercy from myself. I had decided that I was so guilty that I should be so full of shame and hatred. In part because that's, again, what I was taught, right? And if you're an LGBTQIA plus person in this world, you know that. If you're a person of color in this world, you know that. You know what it's like for society to teach you that you are less than. If you are not an able-bodied person in this world, and a world that constantly shows you you need to be able-bodied to function fully in this world, that's what it's built for. You know what it's like to be treated as not good enough. And I think my call out to the rest of you folks is to maybe try to step forward in a little more compassion in this world. You don't know what it's like to walk in a world that's telling you at many turns that who you are isn't good enough. I think ultimately that you're afraid of that too, but most likely no one told you that, and society certainly didn't tell you that, and religion didn't tell you that. But no one's going to give us this. It can't come from outside. It's not a solution that's going to appear, you know, like a lot of Christianity talks about this sort of second coming, right? Where like Jesus is going to like come back on like a white horse, save us all, save the world, at least whoever's, you know, good enough to be saved. I don't know, that got me thinking though, like maybe that's about us coming back for ourselves. Like maybe it's all a metaphor but we took it way too literally. What if it's a metaphor for coming back for ourselves? Like coming in like a savior, like a knight in shining armor, but to save ourselves. I think how we do that too is like what Liz Gilbert said. We have to give ourselves mercy. We have to be willing to step into new spaces, to step beyond who we think we've been, to let go of these stories that we have told ourselves and that other people have told us and that society has told us and decide, no, we have control over that. We can't control society. We can't control what anybody else does. That shit's for sure. But we can decide what we do inside of our own minds. We can actually let ourselves off the hook. 
And I think that just starts by, I'm sober. So one thing I know is it all starts by admitting you have a problem. So let me say, I have to admit, I have a problem. I have a problem with being unwilling to give myself mercy, with being unwilling to let myself off the hook. And I'm going to watch that. I'm going to monitor it in the same way I monitor any other type of sobriety in my life, which is taking it one day at a time. Hell, sometimes one hour at a time, sometimes one minute at a time. Now, I don't know if that'll work for you. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But we all have to start somewhere. And I think I'm ready. I'm ready to let myself off the hook. This shit's gone on long enough. And it's probably gone on long enough for you too. Who could you be in this world if you let yourself off the hook? If we're ultimately afraid that we just don't even know ourselves, we don't know who we would be, what if we find out? And what if it's far greater than we could have ever imagined? What if we are far greater than we could have ever imagined? I'm pretty certain that we are. And that's saying a lot coming from someone like me, who has doubted themselves to no end. So at the end of these episodes, I like to read my section at the end of the chapter that I'm talking about. I didn't really stick much to this chapter, but I'm in the struggle part of the book. And so I want to read you The Dear Beloved. That's the end of chapter called What Now? And if you don't know about The Dear Beloved, The Dear Beloved is something, again, maybe one day Liz Gilbert will hear this, but I was in a writer's workshop years ago with Martha Beck, and Liz Gilbert came on as a guest, and she talked about how she like writes these letters uh, from love, the universe, the divine, to herself in the morning. And so she gave us this practice, and you know, she kind of offhanded wrote like, oh, just start by saying like, dear beloved, broken hearted self, this is like what I want you to know. And then like, just let yourself channel love. And I started doing that after that workshop. And I, I did it for like two months, maybe more. And I had like 60 of these going. And it was pretty spectacular because as I started laying out the book, I started to realize that there was one of these for each chapter. And now these were written years beforehand and they fit perfectly. Like there was literally one for each chapter. So this is from the chapter, What Now? Dear beloved, unbound self, this is what I want to tell you. Though you are in struggle, you do not have to be constrained and confined by every single thing in your experience. You have created this space within you where you are restrained, tied up, bound to outcomes of the most difficult sort. You have manifested yourself into this world, this experience, picturing yourself as a creature at the mercy of it all. But there is another path. Today is the day to release yourself, to emerge from the constraints you've created around yourself. Choose freedom. You humans spend so much of your time trying to escape your circumstances, numbing out with whatever you can, whatever it is for you, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, distraction after distraction. Whatever you use, we promise you one thing. It's not working, and it isn't helping you feel better. 
Freedom is what you seek. Freedom is what you all seek. You hold each other captive, too. You tell each other whom you can love and whom you can marry, who deserves the best jobs because of the perceived, quote, betterness, like the color of your skin, your socioeconomic path, the fitness or beauty of your body, or your gender. All of this must stop. You must choose to cease this part of your experience. None of you can be free if any one of you is still held captive. Each of you reading this can create the space for this freedom as you practice holding the highest vision for yourself, knowing that oneness is what brings you all, us all, together. Remember, the struggle is not hopeless or useless. This is what you all came here into this life to unleash. Your work is no longer about someone outside of yourself, the government, an authority figure, parents, etc., telling you what is best for you and for everyone else. This is now the time for stepping forward with faith in your inner guidance, the God within, your highest self. Many of you have lost sight of that compass. Your divine direction seems lost in the mist or fog, somewhere far off in the distance. But it never leaves you. It's time to dust off the inner compass, close out the voices of the outside world that have been screaming at the top of their lungs at you and everyone else, and just grow quiet and listen. Listen for that still, small voice inside you. It's there, we promise. Even if you think it's not, or think it's gone, it is right there, and it always has been. You will come to feel this yourself the more you practice slowing down, getting still, and getting off the gerbil wheel. The rat race is literally draining your soul. So step off, quiet your heart and your mind, and just take some moments each day to actually listen. Don't talk, don't request, don't do anything. Just be. Be in the moment, right where you are. Be open, not closed off and protected. Be available. Listen with your heart. This, we promise you, will bring you back to your compass, showing you your divine direction. As you see it more and more clearly, you will be able to act from the place of knowing and heart-centered action. This is the only way to actually get anywhere. Otherwise, you just keep going around the gerbil wheel, around and around the same experiences, until at last you learn the lessons and take a new divinely guided path in the right direction. This life is a wild and crazy ride sometimes. We know this. You knew it too going into this experience. That's why you chose it. The transformation is priceless and is something you truly cannot experience without the fire or the tsunami or the winds. You are the earth as it is transformed by the other elements. Surrender. Stop fighting. Be within it. Be made anew, brought to life in a new way. This is what you are seeking. We promise. Then if you'd like to do your own dear beloved writing prompt, here's the phrase for you. Ask the God within you to guide you in these questions. What do you have to tell me about learning to reach toward my own heart's compass? 
What can you show me about where in my life I am spinning or grasping on a shovel that I need to put down? How can I slow down? Write down the response, starting with, Dear Beloved. All right, y'all. Thanks for being with me on this journey, and I uh, hope you'll join me next week on What Needs to be Said. Bye.